box, but you're, you're in the hotbed of everything. So happy you could join us here. I think I see Mitch's notes that we're ready to get started. Uh, so hello, everybody. Um, welcome to the third installment of the Humans of Grinnell live interview series. This is a new program that we're putting on that focuses on Grinnellians discussing various topics related to their own life experiences. My name is Paul, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host Stella, as well as three awesome alumni who we'll be talking with for the next hour. And I'm super excited. Thank you all for being here. Today on the show, we are excited to be joined by Kyle, who is a, a writer from Montezuma, Iowa. His plays have been produced and developed by theaters across the country, including Actors Theater of Louisville, Denver's Curious Theater, Nashville Repertory Theater, and Seven Devils Playwriting Conference in McCall, Idaho, among others. His most recent play, The Secretary, wrestled with the question of who should own a gun and was about a small town gun manufacturer whose guns are seemingly going off by themselves. Kyle received his MFA from the Meitner Center for Writers and currently lives in the Netherlands with his partner and their two small dogs. Our second alum is named H, and they're an associate professor of theater at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, a member of Actors' Equity, and a full member of SDC. H founded Mosaic NY, a social justice theater company at HWS based off of a model they founded at Auburn University. Their work as a theater artist has led them to work as a resident artist at Indie Convergence and a participant in La Mama Umbria International Directors Symposium, Del Arte International Summer Intensive, Directors Labs North and West, and Pig Iron Theater Company's Something from Nothing workshop. Their work consistently interrogates questions of othering, isolation, community, and identity, both in the classroom and on the stage. A midlife diagnosis of vision loss that may well lead to blindness has given additional urgency to their work to learn how to create accessible and inclusive spaces for artists and audiences alike. Our third alum is Anton from the class of 2002. He holds his MFA from the University of Iowa Playwrights Workshop and has worked professionally as a director, playwright, sound designer, composer, and arts education consultant and practitioner. His personal mission is to change the face of American theater audience. As an educator, he spe specializes in arts interrogate integration techniques, hip-hop theater history and for performance, and ensemble-focused playwriting. Currently based in Minneapolis, he is the artistic director slash CEO of Climb Theater, a touring company that uses arts integration and theater techniques to strengthen and exercise the skills of accountability, resiliency, empathy, advocacy, and self-control in individuals and within communities. He's an avid fan of the Minnesota Vikings, his wife, the color purple, the actual color, not the book, and his three amazing daughters, Juliana, Violetta, and Fiorella. So our first question for the day is, obviously, none of those bios could do any of you enough justice. So would you be willing to tell us a little bit more just about what you do and how your path went after Grinnell? And you're welcome to go in any order. Uh, I guess I'll go in the, in the, in the side, I was trying to decide who's going to go first. Uh, so yeah, as, as they said, my name is Anton and, uh, I do, I always try to find anything that is, that is, that is collaborative and involve and, and involves an audience slash slash, um, performer, um, relationship, um, be that teaching, be that through a play, be that through a class, be that through a protest, any time where, where one person knows they are being watched and is leveraging that and others know they are watching someone and they are leveraging their power and um, insight within that. Um, sporting events, um, same, very, very similar. Um, so that's, and that's, how did I get there was, how did I, how did I come to that probably was from, um, my journey at Grinnell, a liberal arts institution where I kind of didn't have those gen ed requirements to um, to um, to deal with. So I got to kind of pick and choose what I did and always noticed that whatever class I was in seemed to somehow be related to everything else, every other class I was taking. 
And ultimately, that's how I decided that this is the path I wanted to take. It was like, well, everything I'm doing seems to somehow go back through the lens of performance, be it um, a sociology class, an American studies class, um, psych class, a history class, somehow I found myself going back to performance theater or sports that's not attractive. That went back to it. So um so when I finished my four years at Grinnell, um I had an opportunity to either um take a position as a literary management um new play development person at Florida Studio Theater, um where I had interned the summer before, or um go to the one grad school I applied for, which is University of Iowa's Prairie's workshop. And um, I got in and, and I, my question for them was, well, can I, do I have to only write plays? Do I get to do anything else? Like, can I sound design and direct it? Can I take other classes and dance and all of this? And they're like, yeah, go for it. I'm like, perfect, I'm going there. So um, I got three years to be at a phenomenal program to write, but also to meet some amazing colleagues. And at the same time, work with them, um, you know, with in the dance department and as a sound designer and and nationally while I was there because I had the time to. And three years later, with that same kind of approach, got to Minneapolis and uh, reached out to my mentors way back from high school, who I met when I was at a playwriting camp. And they kind of got me working at as an educator um, to apply my skills and the work that I was doing. And and so how did I get here after Grinnell? I just um always just kind of kept my eyes open to what was around me and try not and try not to play the game, but see just kind of what what appeared. And if I liked it, I followed it. And here I am. Thank you. I'm gonna hop in just because Florida Studio Theater made me so right after Grinnell, I kind of fell into an internship at um, the Oslo Center for the Performing Arts, also in Sarasota. Um, and so I was there for a year. I never had any interest in stage managing, but uh, I guess the biggest thing for me has been whatever door seems to open. I am a fan of wandering through it. So that led me to stage managing, which then um, I did like, got an equity card that I haven't used since getting it. So I did one year of professional stage management and then I don't like not being involved in creative decisions. It's not my thing. Uh, and so the only part of stage managing I really liked besides meeting a lot of people and getting to observe directors work was calling a show, which is true art, but the rest of it is really not my, my interest. So, um, yeah, I wound up getting a master's degree and then taking some time off and doing professional theater and then actually got invited back to Grinnell to teach acting and direct where I met Kyle, who was in my show. So that's that's awesome. Um, and that got me interested. I'd been fighting academe because my parents are both educators and I really wanted to not be in the family business. Um, but there are a lot of things I really like about it. I uh, don't have to worry about box office and I can really follow what I'm interested in exploring and the goal is to learn. So that's really what I try to do. And then from there, other doors have opened. My last year I was on sabbatical and I was supposed to be developing a show that was really audience interactive and all about exploring, like tethering ourselves to each other physically and creating physical art and uh, then COVID. So I've been learning video editing and sound editing and creating a solo show for live stream and some things along those lines. So the biggest thing for me is just a door opens, I'm curious, I go through. Um, this is Kyle, uh, and uh, I'm a writer, and also uh, I sometimes dramaturg. Uh, and I uh, I started writing at Grinnell. Actually, uh, I went to this program in Connecticut. It was my study abroad in Connecticut, um, and it really was study abroad for me because I'm uh, I'm from Montezuma, just down the street uh, from Grinnell. Um, uh, and I'd never really traveled anywhere. So it was a very, it was a very long, we took a train there. Um, it was a very long train ride and we were supposed to, uh, learn like five monologues and read 13 plays and complete this like one page playwriting assignment. And I like memorized no, none of the monologues. I read none of the plays, but I worked the entire train ride on this like tiny playwriting assignment. Uh, and it was weird cause it was on that train ride that I was like, oh, this is fun. 
And then being there for that semester, uh, I, I was kind of like, uh, I, I took a playwriting class and I was like, oh, this is, this is like what I want to do. Um, so then I got back to Grinnell and I, uh, we, uh, we put up my first one act in uh, the wall performance lab. I don't remember what it's called, but, uh, and, uh, and it was just a blast. And then after Grinnell, I, I decided that I needed to learn, uh, I needed to know a lot more uh, about, I guess, literature and like how one becomes a playwright. So I did a bunch of internships and I uh, worked at a bunch of theaters and I bounced around uh, to different cities. Uh, and then I was in Chicago and I think my friend, uh, Elizabeth, uh, who's also a Grinnell uh, alum, uh, told me something about how they were uh, doing slip and slide uh, in November in Austin, Texas. And I was like, oh, this sounds awesome. Like Chicago's really cold. Um, uh, so I like just got rid of everything and I bought a car and I drove to Austin uh, and I decided I was gonna go to this program, the Missioner Center, uh, which is uh, kind of this uh, interdisciplinary writing program. Uh, and I just assumed <laughs> that everything would work out. And it did. I got in, um, and uh, and then I've just been kind of writing since. Uh, and uh, I stayed in Austin uh, for a long time, and then I just moved to Amsterdam uh, to start a new adventure, I guess. So, uh, so I guess like <laughs> everybody else uh, on the panel, it's just a lot of like something happens, and you you choose something, and you follow it, and somehow you end up somewhere. Thank you. Who would have guessed that the panel of all theater people improvises a lot? <laughs> Seriously. So Paul and I are both very unfamiliar with the nuts and bolts of theater. Um, can you guys tell us? Um, can you tell us more about how something actually goes from an idea to theater um, in your different perspectives? and what other considerations go into that process. Um, and Kyle, we were kind of specifically wondering, since you're writing and working in Amsterdam now, how this process is different in Europe versus the United States. This is a crazy question. Say, Who wants to start first? Well, I was just going to say, I don't know that there is a process, so maybe that's also why I'm just feeling um, like I'll sit back, but there is, there seem to be a thousand different processes depending on where you are, who you're working with, and what type of theater you're doing. So, um, you know, I've done everything from more traditional, like you pick a play, you cast the show, you rehearse it to um, something that these folks can talk much more about of trying to write a show or working with actors to devise something and then turn that into a show. And so there. Yeah, I don't have a good answer outside of that. There are so many different ways that theater can be done. Yeah, kind of seconding that as we talk about um, the root of your question, that question of um, how do you go from idea to theater, um, which I think is very different from um, from I from idea to production, right? There is a production process which has a very set set of like the budgetary constraints, the um the house size, this type of stage you're working on, um, um, the ever the, the biggest division, the biggest challenge as a producer, who the subscriber base or who your current audience base are and how that affects um, not only the production process, but your season selection process. Um, but outside of that, there is something very, um, very special about the process of creating a live piece of uh, something live with an audience to watch. Um, and where the idea for me always starts with at least is is the is the beginning with a question, and this is no different than how I approach education. The idea of a question of inquiry. Um, it's that what is a question that I want to ask that usually I have no answer to, um, that I hope that I don't think the world has an answer to, and I think historically the plays and productions that that tend to live a long time forever tend to be plays that ask unanswerable questions. Those famous ones. What happens after you die? We're never going to have a specific answer. It's gonna be like scientific school. We're not gonna know, right? So there's those plays seem to always be able to revive themselves. Whereas, um, what you know, what what led to the um, or 
or when you look at some of these perspectives, some something that was very specified in terms of time, it might not live forever without having to have a drastic change. Do I really care? You know, right now, does, a mo does, a, does the history of a monarchy affect me now in America is, is not a monarchy unless I do some weird parallel between the monarchy and our current governmental system. And you can do that, but it's still allegorical at best, right? So the idea of, um, of idea for me, it's always question as a director, as a playwright, as a producer, um, as, a, as an educator. What's the question I want to ask? And how can I work with a community of collaborators and include the audience as a collaborator in that process to um, incite at least exploration of that question, but ideally action after the question has been ex explored? Yeah, the only thing I would add is like nuts and bolts, like the writer, uh, like one way it's done, I guess, is writer writes a play and then has to find someone who will do uh, their play. And uh, and depending on like what your ambitions for that play, uh, you kind of have two decisions, like you, you get your friends together and you just do the play. And I think that's, uh, it's one of those things if you want, if you ever want your play done, you just do it and then you find an audience and, and that's kind of your experience. Um, if you want a bigger, uh, fancier production, um, uh, because that kind of play can be done for like zero cents uh, in somebody's garage, and it's kind of awesome. Um, uh, or you, if you want a bigger, uh, larger production uh, and an audience that's not just your family and friends, uh, then you find someone with a theater um, and you get them to like your play or you show them your play uh, through workshops or what have you. Um, or readings, uh, and then they pick your play uh, and then uh, it, it, playwrights sometimes have some power in the sense that they can help with casting or say like, oh, I want to work with this director or like this designer. Um, and, and then a theater produces your play and uh, and then you kind of sit back and watch people make your vision awesome or make it awful. Um, and you could do nothing about it because you have no power at that point. But that's kind of where, uh, I don't know, things get uh, either the magic is made or the misery is made. But either way, it's a good time. Oh, and the difference in Europe is that uh, um, uh, they, <laughs> uh, they do a lot more here in America. I feel like they do uh, like you'll do a, uh, most theaters will do a play and they'll do it for like two weeks, one week, six weeks. There'll be like a one time run um, most. Of, and this is I don't know anything. Actually, I know very little about uh, theater in Amsterdam, but I do, do know a lot of things about theater in uh, the German speaking world. Um, uh, which is kind of what brought me here uh, to Europe and what they do oftentimes is instead of running a show for six weeks at a time and then closing it is that they'll put up a show and then they'll run it in repertory. So they'll do it on uh, like instead of uh, theaters in America will come out with a season every year and they're like, this is what we're doing this year and it's uh, it's like in. In January, you get this in February, you get this and then uh, December we're doing Christmas Carol again. Um, and uh, in Europe, it's a little bit different in that they come out with a season or like a, a plan every two months and it's a, and they'll be like, okay, we're going to do the show we did five years ago. And then the next day we're going to do this other show that's going to come in. Um, and so then like uh, things just kind of uh, your plays never or the plays never die. Uh, they just kind of go on. There's a production of Hamlet uh, that's done by uh, this theater in uh, Berlin called Schaubühne, uh, who I love, and they've been doing this Hamlet for like nine years, and it's amazing um, because every time that it, they announce they're going to do it, like it sells out instantly because it's such an amazing show, um, and so they keep just kind of bringing it back every every couple months and every couple weeks, and um, and it's that thing where you uh, you don't have to see it die. Whereas in America, the theater kind of goes and then it's it's dead uh, for some time, usually. Oh, can I ask a follow-up question just because I'm curious and yes. um, does that have a lot to do or more to do with government funding of the arts and being able to pay resident companies because exactly. we don't do that in the U.S.? Yeah. Yep, that's a huge, uh, that's a very big point. Uh, I was actually just looking at this the other day or the other day. So I was like, how do like how are uh, theaters in specifically Germany like structured differently than America? In America, you have these generally 
um like you have a lot of development people on staff to like make money for the theater and like get donations and solicit um and, and have these big events and they don't have anybody in development in on like that i can tell uh in german theater like but they uh in literary departments in america there might be like one or two people but in like in a regular german theater they'll have like six or ten and they're just like full of dramaturgs um uh, doing these things so but that's exactly why they have state funding um and so they're able to have these resident companies so that way when you want to do your your show over and over again uh you just like call the people up and you're like we're doing it on tuesday and then if they can't do it they've got like 10 other shows that they can do with casts that are larger than four yeah like yeah that's the other thing is that, but a lot of times they actually do like a cast of depends on the theater really, but they have a lot of like six person casts um, that they do, but they'll have everyone play multiple roles. And then that becomes this uh, thing. They also do these really interesting shows and they're kind of composite shows of people. Um, uh, and they're, they're, they're ensemble shows and they, they a lot of times pick non actors. Um, to be in these shows, uh, there was a show that I, I didn't see because I want to see it live, but they were streaming it and they, uh, uh, I think picked six or eight, uh, teenagers, uh, who are refugees, uh, and are kind of victims of the refugee crisis and they had them put up together a show. Um, and they, uh, and then they just run it every and now it's in repertory. So they, you know, they bring these kids back uh, who are just living their normal lives and have them do the show, uh, every. A uh, couple weeks, and uh, I think it's uh, it's kind of fantastic because then every these people get paid and they've got like some income coming in. I have a bit of a second follow up question before we move on. Um, H, you mentioned kind of one of the draws of academia being that you, know, you don't really have to worry about box offices or crowds or making money or anything like that. Um, so. To me, as an outsider, that feels a little bit more similar to the system that Kyle was describing. Um, you know, is that true or not really? There are, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's a good question. Um, I mean, I expect there are some similarities and then also some very large differences. For one thing, I should clarify that that is not true of all academic theater programs, right? There are many that are dependent on box office and then do two seasons and the like around that. I've been fortunate enough to work at two institutions where that's not the case and um, where we've been funded by, because theater is expensive. It's just expensive to turn lights on and buy equipment and we're also not very ecologically sound so we also frequently are wasteful right so there's all kinds of things that go into a, lo a lot of theater um so i've been fortunate enough to work to places where we aren't dependent and the institution is helping to subsidize what we're doing in the theater as part of our educational mission and so in that regard um i think there are some similarities on the flip side you know, there's a kind of limited range of what you can explore with actors who are all within a very limited age range. Um, we have a very hard time here sustaining, which is students are pulled to do a thousand things at once. And so trying to keep a lot of students engaged in what we're doing on stage is more challenging than I think it might be if you're in a lively and vibrant arts community again, where you're funded and so forth. So those are some of the differences that I might imagine between the two. To follow up with, with that one, Heather uh, H. I grew up, my mom was on theater faculties growing up. So I, I, I lived from Yale Reps campus as a kid to um, where she was the assistant to the Dean Lloyd Richards, who was the, the, who, the man who put the original Raising the Sun on Broadway and then put Pinches on Broadway. And then I was in the office out with James Earl Jones a next to me as a kid. And the, the University of Iowa, Northern Iowa, Spelman's on HBCU's campus. Um, and H is 100% right. Every program is different with their own politics. But one thing that, um, that um, I think that Yale Rep showed is that they were a training program that also this man also ran the O'Neill 
and also is very much transferring plays right to Broadway at a Yale rep. And I think the Broadway model is much more akin to what Kyle is talking about. Why is Cats and Chicago coming back? They don't, they run, these plays are still living and thriving quite well. Um, um, there'll be some point where Hamilton has a revival, you know, 20 years from now, we're like, whoa, Hamilton's back. It's his old, you know, um, hope not. But, um, but there are these, there is, there is this kind of for-profit model that exists in American theater that is where the money is, where the equity minimum for an actor to be on a Broadway cast is like, what, I think $2,000 a week. Um, that's the same as some of these large Lort theaters like the Guthrie and those touring, those touring Broadway ones that tour around. Um, you can make a pretty good living off of that one, but those are not looking for funders, they're looking for sponsors. They are merchandising. They've got their studio album and they have their t-shirts. I mean, when I was a kid, all those rent t-shirts everyone was wearing, you know, everyone's singing Seasons of Love around, you know, no one's, you know, the regional theater model, we'd have not, I think the nonprofit model is what we're talking about now is that that's a very different structure where you're dependent upon 80% of your operating to come from unsecured funds. Maybe donors, well, now you're reliant on a very specific audience base, or maybe grantors who are going to go with whatever the rest of the landscape is. So right now, the next few years, grantors are going to be throwing money, throwing money at Black artists and Black playwrights and to write plays that serve white audiences. And that's where the process gets broken. Because to write the play that needs to be said, you're going to go through so many funding filters of funders. The, the play's going to come out, it's going to be exactly what no one wants to see but the audience who is already there. So that's just kind of a, on the higher ed thing. It's the, this long season is, a, is about a lot of it's about money and, and giving plays the time they need to kind of really grow and build. Thank you. And that's actually a perfect segue into our, our next real question, um, which is we've already touched on it a little bit. Um, but just, you know, with any discipline, there are strengths and there are weaknesses to theater and performance art um, more generally. Um, and we're just curious from each of your positions, what do you see as the strengths of theater and where do you think the most pressing weaknesses are today? Um, uh, speaking of weaknesses, I, I, H, I love what you said about it being ecologically not friendly. It is the most like theater is just like a, a big waste of resources in the sense that like it's all it's a lot of people's time and it just takes hours and then uh, like it just costs so much money to bring all these people and then when you think like just getting everyone to the theater like everyone has to drive their car there or like ride public transportation if the public transportation is good enough to get there and so it's just like this big kind of uh cesspool of waste but there's something really beautiful about getting a group of people together into a room to experience one thing. And I think within that, it, it creates a very interesting uh, dialogue or an opportunity for dialogue with an audience in the sense that uh, a lot of times when we have debates or we talk about things, uh, we all have different sets of facts or different things that we've experienced or different things that we know as true. Whereas like when you see a show, everyone's seeing the same show and you might have a different perspective on it. But when you talk about the show, that's one thing that you're talking about. So in a sense, it like frames a debate for or it frames a discussion that people can have and allows people to have a touchstone for um, for kind of these bigger discussions uh, 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 about, you know, life, death and God uh, and everything in between. Uh, and and I think that that's what theater does very, very well is it, it, it allows it, it creates an event uh, because it's again, it, it dies after it's it's been there and, and you can only tell uh, your friends or your family about it later, which is the thing that I kind of love about it uh, because everything's always better in your memory than maybe it is. Uh, in other terms, yeah. I think, yeah, so to build off of that, Kyle, I think a lot of what I think about is how I've been a, you know, been a huge proponent of theater for years, largely in terms of empathy and the fact that you have live 
the live audience recognizes the shared humanity of the live performers on stage. And I think there is something real about that. And I like, my heart is beating with that person. And I think there's a way that that gives a different way of feeling experiences and feeling lived realities than any other form, reading about it or anything else. So I think that's something that theater does extraordinarily well. But I'm always torn between like Brecht and our toe in terms of like, is that a good thing? So on the one hand, I think it's great. It can really help me place myself in someone else's shoes. And that's the basis of theater and the foundation, right? That's what an actor is doing, putting themselves in, in another character's shoes um, and trying to imagine the world from those given circumstances. What would it be like, right? And then the audience is there with them and they feel these things, but then how does that evoke change is one of my questions that I'm always like, how do we move beyond, although I felt sad, I really felt for that person. Now I go back to my life. Um, or also one of the things I've been struggling with, how do I, particularly in the US where we're neoliberal and it's all about the individual and what we can do on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And I don't know that that makes meaningful change a lot of the time. So I guess where I'm kind of having a, a midlife crisis with my art form sometimes has to do with that. Like, how are we reinforcing the narrative that if you care about someone, that's enough, right? Versus like structural change. And I don't know that the theater is really great at inspiring structural change. Yeah, I think kind of following up on that, going back to theater, the institution, the industry, the business, that is the I, the greatest weakness to theater the craft, um, is that all this, that it's, theater's terrible at defining itself in the broadest sense of the word theater. And so we, by nature, talking about what this expensive part of theater was expensive for Luis Valdez to do out the, the plays on this in the great the great workers movements that were phenomenal social justice pieces of work that were not monetized but we but Luis Valdez is doing quite well for himself um because of the work he was doing in the community um but as an institution we have this very strict idea of it must have you know box office seat, a house size, a certain community or certain, you know, we must, we must incite change. And if it's not inciting change, it's fluff or if it's, you know, and we have this musical theater to non-musical theater divide. They're like classics to contemporary and classics really means just Shakespeare to anybody, but no one's looking at the classics in terms of Kabuki or No or Sanskrit drama or ancient Egyptian theater or all church worship in itself. Look at a black church and you're like, that was the root of the civil rights movement. What do you think MLK was coming out of? Was but performance and through black performance. Um, but that's not considered theater. Um, and so theater fails to define itself and to include what it really, what theater really can be. And, and what it is defining itself in has a very specific audience. And we spend so much time talking about making it look cool on the stage and look diverse on the stage, but but or it's too expensive for certain communities. The same, like I don't want to pay to see a play half the time. I can afford to. I will happily drop two hundred bucks to see a Vikings game. I will happily buy spend one hundred fifty bucks on a really cool pair of Pumas. You know, you know. Um, so I have the discretionary income if I choose to use it. I just find something, something more meaningful to me um, outside of theater. And I work in this field. Uh, so yes, yeah, it's, it's what they, we fail to describe ourselves um, and to include the full breadth of what theater and performance can be as an industry and institution and our institution fails. And, and that's, why so that's why I can't make any money because very few people care about what they're investing into. I think our, our next question is really building off what you were just talking about a lot, um, Anton. Um, we were kind of so looking at theater as a mechanism for for social change. There's definitely appears to be a divide between theater as like a higher education based and capitalist institution and then using it as a medium to push boundaries and affect change. And we're wondering 
if, if each of you want to talk about how you experienced that struggle in your own life and career and how those tensions have affected your work. I'll keep this short because I, I can rant, rant on this one. Oh, I like to, I'm in, I'm in a place right now. Um, but so this theater as a higher education based capital institution. Um, I think name an institution isn't capitalist right now. Um, you know, so this, this idea that we can create this kind of space in in um in America, no matter what, that is not in, that is not impacted by capitalist thoughts, capitalist mentality, um, market driven market driven mindset. Um, just as theater is being capitalist, so is the whole equity, diversity, inclusion, you know, business model right now. Um, a lot of big dollars going towards a lot of bidders, the, the lowest, highest bidder um, to do community-based work and to push those boundaries and to affect change. Um, so my personal struggle has been that idea of how either do you spend your energy as uh, as an activist or as a leader trying to package yourself and to sell yourself or sell what you or sell what you do so well or you just get out there and do it and while you're doing it other folks are packaging perfect statements perfect comments perfect well-crafted arguments and initiatives and blah 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 to make sure they don't say the wrong thing and that's where the capitalist parts come in. That's what yields the dollars. Statements yield dollars. Actions yield change. And if those are in conflict, um, those who are doing the actions, I'm seeing the Minneapolis in the community right now. Um, I'm watching dollars go to those who I know are going to use it to kind of keep their doors open and the orgs that are doing the work in the grassroots, in the trenches. By the time they find the time to make a statement or put it out there, the money's already been spent on someone else. So the struggle is package yourself or do the work. How do you do both and stay sustainable? Yeah, I think, sorry, I have a billion thoughts spiraling off of that because uh, you're right, Anton. And I, it, for me, some of it also goes back to depending on how you're defining theater, whether it's, so the, Capitalist model is the problem that we have to work, right? Our, our living, our healthcare, our ability to access any of the system is dependent upon how we work. So therefore, I think how you're spending your time winds up being either a means of sustaining yourself and then it kind of infects everything about how are we defining theater as opposed to I'm going out and using my theater skills to affect this particular change, regardless of whether or not it's theater. Like I I'm drawing on my theater skills all the time, whether it is as an activist or um, as someone trying to adapt my classroom for COVID, right? Like all of those skills that I've learned in the theater are at use, but because I have to figure out how I'm making a living, then it's always about like, well, where are you expending your hours and how are you doing that? And how are you doing that in a way that you can still put food on the table? And then I think that leads to all kinds of questions about what theater we can or cannot do because it has a lot to do with, you know, if I'm taking another job so I can do theater on the side. It's it's just we have limited hours. We have a need to sustain ourselves in this society. We have to do that through work. Like all of our access to resources basically comes through some form of employment. Um, and so theater is either something. Yeah, I, I'll leave it there because I think I, I, that's my clear point. So. Yeah, I feel like this this like question is the one that could like take up like three hours of this podcast. And I, I think it would still, um, it would be really interesting. Uh, <laughs> so just FYI. Um, uh, but I think that um, one of the things I've been thinking about, and, and this is maybe a side topic, I've been thinking a lot about infrastructure and just the way that uh, a city's infrastructure and even just the way that work is uh, built and created uh, affects like if someone can enjoy theater if they want to enjoy theater 
Um, like if I work in a factory uh, for like 10 hours a day or eight hours a day and it's and I'm doing very physically demanding work um, and uh, and then I come home and I'm super tired. Uh, I don't want to go see a play. <laughs> I don't really want to leave my house. I want to kind of like stay home and watch cartoons or something. Um, and I think that theater and like if I have kids, I don't want to like I don't what like I want to go somewhere with my kids maybe. Um, and, and I don't think that necessarily theater is that answer, or if it is, then it has to be better than sit. It has to like offer something so awesome that it will get someone who has done all of that work and done all that stuff uh, to get them to leave the house and uh, and also like supply something for their for their for their children and uh, and all of those things. And sometimes I don't know if. Uh, theater does that or wants to do that. Um, and I, I, so it, it, that kind of goes back to like, if someone didn't have to work 10 hours, if they only had to work five hours a day or four hours a day, and like, and if they had um, adequate public transportation in order to like get places, or if they could ride their bikes to the theater, like with their kids, like, would they do that? Or would they want to do that more? Um, and so I guess when we talk about this, I, I think about like the kind of like world that I wish that we lived in where like uh, theater was more of a viable option for more people, um, just energy wise and uh, and also like time wise and uh, and all of those things. And I, I think that that it, it comes down to just like how we do things uh, in our lives and 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 things like that. So. Yeah, I'll confess that as so I'm confessing along with Anton about preferring to go to a sporting event and frequently that's been true for me too. And then one of the things I have appreciated about the past year of quarantine or whatever is I actually really appreciate I've probably attended more theater partially because I'm in a rural area of New York, right? So it's not like I can hop out and see a lot of theater from my door. Anyway, it's um, very hard for me to get to the theater. but. Also, I can show up in my pajamas and like not have to be a quiet theater audience sitting in my good seat to be silent. And if it's really crap, you know, I can leave the room or I can leave my computer up and let it play out and go do my life. And I confess, yeah, kind of if we're not making great theater that people want to be there, it's, it is a lot of work to go to the theater. And so there are elements of access and inclusion that the current moment has really opened up that I hope we don't drop the second that people are more able to move around. Yeah, kind of off of that, that also what you just mentioned about that, that um, you keyed in the idea of, of the barriers of theater etiquette, right? Right. Who says I can't just get it on walk? I walk out of play before it's bad, if it's bad enough, but um, in a sporting event, I'll go get my popcorn, I'll go get my beer, I'll walk out, I'll, I'll miss part of the game, or I'm like, oh, I can't miss this play, but I really want my beer, but I can't miss this play, but I really want my beer. Oh, we don't have time, I guess, right? We we, we feel invested enough, and I always use that when I think about most of the plays that clients, those are for youth, for kids, they don't know that etiquette yet, and we spend most of our time letting the teachers know that if your kids get rowdy, we are okay with that. As a matter of fact, it's preferred and it's preferred and developmentally appropriate for a kindergartner to not sit still if there's a giant dragon saying, hey, how's it going? Yeah, they're sitting still. I've done something wrong. Um, and, and my acting debut as a kid was Peter Pan. There's a famous moment where like where they're like, I, I was four years old and the law of the cute kid on stage with all the University of Iowa students. And that moment, the, the clap you believe in fairy scene, right? There's a laser, there's a little light that's dying. And every kid is like, they literally think someone, a fairy is dying there. And they literally think if they do not clap loud enough, that fairy is going to die. And they clap and scream and yell. And I always said, if I direct that play, if those kids don't, Tinkerbell's dead. In that production, I'll have it, I'll have it called that way. Stage manager, will have, stage manager will have two different cues. If the crowd isn't loud enough to bring Tinkerbell to life, you drop those house lights and Tinkerbell's dead and let a lot of crying kids going home with their parents that day. <laughs> um, or the actors earn it. And we can't assume that because you have a clap if you believe folks are gonna do that. And that's, that this is an audience etiquette. The what'll happen in real life is parents will be like, kids clap louder, otherwise it's not gonna work. 
That's not how it's supposed to work. One person stands, the whole crowd stands for standing ovation. That's not how it's supposed to work. And this etiquette is, an, is a problem. Um, if maybe we gave allowed audiences to speak their real mind versus being in Minnesota, at least Minnesota, nice drive home. What the hell was that? Right. <laughs> right. Um, that if maybe the, we will see a, the game upped on the performance side, on the production side, on the audience development side, if we said, if you hate it, don't wait for the critic to write it. I don't care what the critic says. I care what the audience says right then, right there, right now. And every performance is different. You can boo night one and you can cheer night two. Um, come back if you don't like it. Give us a second chance, maybe. But we don't have that. We're so stuck on etiquette and behavior. That's not how theater began, where it was before house lights were a thing. Totally. I am so on board with that, Tinkerbell. But yeah, we don't give the, like, I don't know when we decided we're not, the audience can't actually have control. And even 90% of the time when we have audience engagement, right, we don't actually really want them to determine how things go. We like try to coerce them mm -hmm. into particular kinds of responses or just respond to what we think the response is going to be. And, and I think for theater, for theater to be exciting to me, the audience has a very real role. And then just one thing I wanted to add to that is all this audience etiquette is very racist, it's very ableist, it's very oppressive, right? And so it excludes large communities from actually participating in the event, either through not literally not being able to access, literally not being able to sit in a theater for however many hours without using a bathroom or whatever they need to do, get up and move, or um, feeling very excluded. And like, it's just, it's a practice that I would, yeah, I'd love for us to leave all of our audience etiquette behind and really work with communities to establish what the etiquette is for any show and that that could change from time to time, right? Because like you were mentioning at the beginning, Anton, I like to ask questions too, like, why do I want to do this production or why do I want to work on this question and why am I doing that here with this particular audience, right? And the nature of that relationship to me should change every time based on what, what we're all trying to do together. So that's actually a perfect segue into another one of the questions. Um, you know, Grinellians always like action, action oriented things. Um, you know, if Stella or I, or an audience member as a lay person really wants to do something uh, to help, to help move theater towards this more inclusive representative space, um, what can we do? How, how can we help towards breaking down these barriers as a relatively uninformed outsider. Um, I really liked what uh, Anton uh, said uh, in, in that if you see a show and it sucks, like tell the people who made it that it sucks. Like I, I feel like the, the like the ruin of uh, uh, American theater is politeness and people saying like good job after show and and not being honest. And I, I feel like that's not just from um, the audience, but also from the critics. Like I feel like a lot of uh, um, a lot of critics are are way too nice because they want to, and I understand why they're doing it. Uh, and I'm specifically talking about uh, Austin, Texas, where I was living. Uh, so, but like the 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 theater or the the critics there are are very famous for for saying how awesome a show is, and when it won't be that awesome. Um, and I think the problem with that is that they, I, I know why they're doing it. They're trying to promote theater and get people to see it. Like, hey, there's this really awesome thing. But if it's not awesome, like there's something disappointing about that. Um, my uh, my brother-in-law, uh, my now brother-in-law uh, came to a show. It was Dance Nation by Claire Barron, which is a nuts show. Like, um, like it's about this dance troupe and they, um, they kind of go feral, like there are weird vampire scenes, like there's like, they have teeth, like it gets, it gets nuts. It's a weird piece of theater. And he'd never seen a, a piece of theater before in his life. And uh, he, my sister had just started dating him and he saw it. Um, and my sister was worried what he would think. And after it, he was like, this is the best thing. I, he's like, this is amazing. He was like, I love this. I, I want to, I, I want to see more theater. Why am I not seeing theater? And they took him to another show. 
um, and it sucked. And uh, in the middle, everyone was complaining about it. Uh, and he was like, no, guys, come on, give it a chance. Because he believed that all theater was like this. And I was like, that is beautiful and amazing. Um, but I think that like when you see something awesome, I think we need to say it. But when we see something that sucks, I think we all have to kind of be brave and say this sucks. Yeah, I think kind of off of that, some of these action steps that I, as as you're asking, I think about is one, it's and it leads into that. It's we have to be in a place as as um not only just artists, whatever your walk of life is of of of, of being okay with being fallible, which is also very hard as a Grinaldi to be like to to be wrong, to try something and know good and well you might not knock it out of the park in every single in every single person's eyes. Every single community's eyes, um, and to, and one thing I would say is that is to fail fabulously, fail boldly. Don't incrementally do these small little things that that kind of like swing for the fences. You know, you might let, you might everyone might hate it, but you might change one life. You might save one life while pissing off a million other people, but you might save one life, and that's worth it to me is to save one life, even if a million people don't like what you did. Um, and so, and then the idea of to, when you're looking at an audience, if you are in the arts and you're looking at your audience or looking at a theater or a company, um, some of the advocacy work and change work comes from focusing on who is not there. And then also knowing from even doing that, that you are already applying, um, prejudice and bias by even doing that. What colors aren't in the audience? Doesn't mean it's not less, less diverse. You know, um, now you're forgetting about hidden hidden disabilities, perhaps. But to always make an effort from design to your focuses to increase to make sure that the audience cannot be defined by a checkbox, um, and so or by a series of checkboxes. That's my goal. Is I don't want to have the, I don't want to preach to the choir. I want half my audience booing and half the audience cheering, and let the, let the real play happen out there when they start saying, "Why are you booing that play? I love so much." That's what I want to see. I like seeing those little those little moments happen. And then you can, and if you have a space as a theater maker, you can, now you can keep it safe. You can bring, you can make sure there's not like a war breaking out because of that. Because you've created a space where it's, it's a shared experience where you can have those viscerally different opinions just going at it in a way that you can help dance and navigate and improv through as we are trained to do as facilitators. I love all of those ideas. And I, um, I do think asking who isn't here and why are they not here, right? Both in terms of who's creating art and also who's attending whatever that event is. And then working to, like, you're always going to have people missing. So constantly trying to expand how you get people in, but also recognizing that that takes sustained effort. So it's not like, oh, one time I went out and did this one thing and that was supposed to bring in this particular group of audience and that's all I need to do. And I can do that once every 10 years and it's fine. You can't do that. You have to have sustained relationships that also does mean, I mean, it's exhausting because you also need to be attending events and you need to be actually creating real relationships. And I think that's true kind of across the board for theaters, for arts organizations, for people who want to be involved. Like how do you create sustained relationships? with people where you're really listening and communicating. And again, having these dialogues about what do we want to see and why now and why here and where do we want that to be? And, and then the other thing I would just say, I guess if I were thinking about concrete action steps, it would be trying to find things that aren't necessarily the thing that's written up in the newspaper or I'm, go I'm going back to Anton's comment, which I think is really important, the way grant funding follows like, power and prestige and then that's where audiences go and there's a lot of amazing work that is being done very non-traditionally very outside of what's written up very outside of what's highly regarded and i think finding those pieces can be extraordinarily rewarding Yeah, so we're we're getting towards the end of the hour here. So I think that we're gonna move on to answering some audience questions. Um, so the first question we have here is, um, what kind of impact from what do you do brings a big smile to you, and who is it impacting? 
it brings a big spell to me anytime I see um anytime I see young people. And when I say young, younger than anyone here, like the my daughter's age, the kindergartners, seven graders, when I see, you know, seven year olds, four year olds, early childhood, you know, when I see the work that I'm doing or that I'm working on with my community, seeing youth at that level engaging in real questions that tend to be ones that we say are adult questions um to be in a car ride home and and to know that not only my daughter but um some of their peers um based on a circle that we are community we're working with are talking about a verdict that's coming out a few hours later and wondering and talking about criminal justice this is a five-year-old in a discussion with a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old around well, what does it mean to be a good guy or a bad guy? What does it mean to, wait, how do we decide? Wait, but do I want, right? To hear deep discussion and because and emotional and visceral reaction um, pre not only theater etiquette, but pre um, life etiquette. Um, pre like, and I think that's anytime I see that happen in the work that I'm doing or that my peers or colleagues are doing, that's what keeps me going. It gives me hope that. You know, if we just get out of the way of the younger ones, we'll be fine. If we just stop messing them up, making and making them grow up too fast, or become adults, or learn that same process. So I like starting. That's why I said with the young ages. You know, one day I'll have an audience when they when they turn thirty, that might come to the plays I want to do. Clearly, neither Kyle nor I ever derive joy from the theater that we're making. That was sarcasm. Um, <laughs> so I guess the things that bring a big smile to me, it's one of the reasons I'm not answering quickly is a lot of it is just being in a theater space and being in those moments, particularly because I primarily define myself as a director. And so a lot of how I determine whether or not something is working is just listening to the audience. Um, and so being present for a moment where everyone is like still silent and leaning in on their seats and they're there and you can just feel that, that for me puts a big smile on my face. There's just something about a whole group of people breathing together in a way that I know is true listening to a moment that I've been involved in that, that makes me feel amazing. Um, for me, theater, or like the act of playwriting and putting on a play and seeing it done, it, it's, uh, I, I see a play like as a machine. And that like when the machine is running and it runs the way that I intended it to and everything fires the way that I wanted it to, it feels like I've invented something and that uh, and that I've complete or I've done what I set out to do. Like when the audience laughs in the right place or they gasp or there's I can see the surprise happening. And so in that way, like it's a very like emotionally detached exercise for me. Uh, that's it, it's somewhat scientific and, and so much like. Uh, the joy of an inventor versus like the thrill of being an artist, I guess. Um, and maybe that's how I view my role in everything. Sorry, you just totally triggered something that I wanted to. Um, yeah, I, what really puts a smile on me, I just love being in the theater. The process of making theater is what puts a smile on my face. So honestly, throughout life, when things are not good and I am not doing well, for me, there's just something about walking through the doors into the space and just focusing on making art with a group of collaborators that I, I could live. If I could live there all the time, I would be a happy human being. Thank you so much. Uh Unfortunately, Kyle, you were right with what you said earlier. Uh, we could talk about this for three, four, five hours and be nowhere close to done. Um, so there's never going to be a good time to cut this off, but that's about all the time we have to talk today. Um, so the log of this um, will be posted on the Humans of Grinnell Facebook page as well as the alumni website. Uh, we actually did get a couple more audience questions that we just don't have time to do here. Um, so we'll send those out to you all and then compile whatever answers you provide back into a Q&A uh, that will also go up with the podcast. Um, 
thank you so much to everyone who tuned in, uh, especially thank you to you three. Uh, it's been, I had a blast. Uh, it's been a really fun conversation uh, and I wish we had longer. <laughs> so thank you again. And I think that's it, unless Stella has anything else to add. Well then, have a great Wednesday, everybody. Um, we can let you know when the questions are compiled and when this is all up. Take care.